Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being here and going to have some fun this morning. Going to be challenged. Are you ready for that? I've had to go through it all week, so I'm excited to share this with you. Grab your phones real quick. Uh, during the month of February, we have been in a relationship series and talking about all things related to sex, romance, and relationship, and I want to highlight a retreat uh, that I'd love for you to consider going to go, to go on, and uh, this is a marriage retreat that will be uh, put on by the Center for Relationship, and uh, it's a DIY is what they call it, marriage retreat, April 12th through the 14th here in Colorado in Inglewood. And uh, if you'll text the word marriage to 720-594-7076, we'll send you the information and a code that would um, give you a discount on this retreat. And when you sign up for it, uh, you're also entering a drawing, so we're gonna give four couples um, the, the gift of being able to go. So if you'll do that, um, and uh, hopefully you'll be one of the couples that gets one of those four uh, free uh, experiences at this retreat, I'd love for you to be able to be part of it. So let's, uh, let's make sure that we do that. Uh, several years ago, there were some letters that were released by Albert Einstein's family. Uh, they were um, letters that had been held uh, in, in kind of a, a, a secret kind of place until 20 years after uh, the Einstein's children had passed away. And uh, you, you probably know the name Albert Einstein well, a German-Jewish theoretical physicist, uh, one of the most famous scientists to ever live. Uh, this week, as I was preparing my thoughts, I looked up online, and he's in most uh, areas that you'd find online listed as one of the top 10 smartest guys to ever live. As a matter of fact, they estimate that his IQ could have been as high as 190. Think about that. This is a smart guy. Incredible at a lot of things, horrible at relationship. He was married to a gal named Milena Merrick, and their relationship disintegrated pretty quickly because of uh, Albert's extramarital affairs. They were separated, and in a last-ditch effort to try and make amends in their relationship to try and provide some stability for their children, Albert sent a letter to Milena and said uh, these things that I want to read to you in hopes of being able to keep their marriage together. Please remember 190 IQ. This is what the letters, true letters, said. Conditions of this contract that he sent to Milena hoping to keep their relationship together. You will make sure that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order. That I will, oh, I'm not done. That I will receive my three meals regularly in my room, that my bedroom and study are kept neat, and especially that my desk is left for my use only. You will renounce all personal relationships with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego my sitting at home with you, my going out traveling with you. You will obey the following points in your relations with me. You will not expect any intimacy from me, nor will you reproach me in any way. You will stop talking to me if I request it. You will leave my bedroom or study immediately without protest if I request it. You will undertake not to belittle me in front of our children, either through words or our behavior. 190 IQ, guys. <laughs> Gentlemen, listen, can you even imagine penning that letter? Ladies, imagine with me for just one second how you would respond if you got that letter, right? <laughs> Milena agreed to the terms. It's a true story. And he was so surprised that she agreed to these terms that he wrote her a second letter to make sure that he had clarified clearly. So this is what the second letter said. 
He wrote to her again to make sure that this made sense. He said um, he was prepared to live together again for the children's sake. It was out of the question that he would have a friendly relationship with her, but he would aim for a business-like one. The personal aspects must be reduced to a tiny remnant, he said. In return, this is big-hearted Al. In return, I assure you of proper comportment on my part. I don't even know what that means. He said this, such as I would exercise to any woman as a stranger. After this arrangement failed, surprise, surprise, Albert ended up marrying another gal. Her name was Elsa Einstein. Did you know that? Actually, his first cousin. This relationship did not, you know, doesn't surprise us at all. It wasn't much better than the first, and Albert continued to have multiple affairs during his second marriage as well. Later in life, another letter that Albert wrote to a dear friend of his, he stated this, what I admire in your father is that for his whole life, he stayed with only one woman. That is a project in which I grossly failed twice. The obvious observation here is that being a true genius isn't enough to making a marriage work, huh? You see, the question that I would want to ask Albert is this. As you approached your marriage, as you approached relationship, listen, the same question I want to ask you, do you approach it as a consumer or do you approach it as a contributor? Guys, this question matters to us today as we've been exploring uh, what it looks like to have relationships that work. And I want to tell you today, I do not believe that this is rocket science. I don't believe that this is quantum physics but I do believe it'll be one of the most difficult, challenging things you've ever done in your life. How do we figure this out? Where do we look to understand how to do relationship? That's what this weekend is about because not one time in all of the years doing what I've done for almost 30 years now, I know of no relationship that begins with a pessimistic dream for the relationship to only last a couple years. I've never once met a couple that says, look, we're gonna do this thing and ultimately we're gonna end in a nasty divorce. Pastor Doug, will you marry us? Because ultimately we know that this is gonna lead to an extremely painful and complicated happily ever after. That's not what people say. The problem is this, let me ask you this. Uh, What does it take to fall in love? What does it take? Have you ever thought about this? This is a good question. What does it take to fall in love? Can you do this? Hold your hand like this and do this. That's all it takes. It's all it takes to fall. We have no problem falling in love, but you know what we have a real difficult time doing? Staying in love, don't we? There should come some kind of instruction manual before you fall in love. We have a problem. You see, in spite of what what we've seen happen in marriages around us, perhaps even your parents' marriage, despite what you see in this culture that you and I live in, despite the alarming divorce rate that's part of our, our culture, d- despite the, the state of your current marriage, perhaps even in spite of the previous marriage that you just got out of, here's what I know. There is likely inside of you still this thought, this really should work. I want that. That I think there is the potential. There is the potential for this to work. And it's just my opinion that I think that it's because God has embedded that desire in your heart. God has created in us a desire and made in the image of God a desire to have 
a healthy relationship. And Jesus is teaching in quotes from the creation story in Genesis when he was teaching in Matthew chapter 19. Look at verse four. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. You know what we don't want? We don't just want a relationship that somehow barely survives the years where we have to put on a fake smile and go through the motions. What we want is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 19. We don't wanna just fall in love. What we want is to stay in love. We want true love. And yet, at the same time, left to our own, we are completely ill-equipped to do this. We need help. And you know, here's part of the problem. Somehow we just believe, because that's what the fairy tale tells us, that if we just find the perfect person, right? If I just find the perfect person, then I'm gonna have a perfect marriage and this thing's gonna work out perfect, right? That's what we think. And I don't mean to disappoint you, but if you're a young person here today, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying. If you're single and you're here today, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying is this is gonna help you avoid a whole lot of pain. The reality, as it relates to that desire to find perfection, is that I really believe that when we all stand to see a bride come walking in in her beautiful dress, that she actually should be doing this. And right before she comes out pushing her cart full of baggage that she's brought in her relationship, when the groom comes out in his sweet looking tux, He should have to come out pushing the same doggone cart because isn't it true we all come with a particular set of baggage unique to our experience, unique to what we've seen and heard and done and not done. Those early days of your infatuation with each other have this uncanny ability to blind you to the reality of your spouse's imperfections. Can I get an amen? I read a story a little while back about a man who in 1963 was in a horrible car wreck. He was driving a Ford Thunderbird, but he had bald tires. And when he pulled onto the highway, he hydroplaned in a rainstorm and smashed right into a semi-truck, and it was a brutal wreck. His car, when you see the pictures on the screen, these are the actual pictures of this wreck. And when you see them, you'll think the same thing that I do. There's no way that this guy would ever be able to, to somehow uh, walk away, let alone survive this wreck. So this guy sustains massive injuries. Um, during the surgery that they, they did on him, they had to stitch him up in over 50 places because glass was literally embedded in his body. He broke several of his ribs and he shattered his hip in multiple places. But somehow, fortunately, he was able to pull through He spent eight weeks in a body cast and ended up making a full recovery and went on to have an incredible life. Over 50 years, listen to me, over 50 years later, he had to go to a courtroom. Who knows what for? Probably a car wreck. (laughs) And as he was going into the courthouse, the metal detector goes off. 50 years after the wreck. And so they're like, can you take your shoes off? Can you take your belt off? Take your jacket off? You know, do you have a cell phone? No, put it all away. And they run him through again, and it beeps again. And so they can't figure out what's causing this, so they take out the magic wand, right? And they start wiping it all over him, and it's his arm. Every time they go over his arm, the metal detector beeps. 
And so they're like, something, dude, something's up. He's like, I have no idea. So he goes to a doctor, and after several hours of surgery, during that surgery, they found a seven-inch long piece of metal, the turn signal for a Ford Thunderbird. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Over 50 years, he had this turn signal embedded in his arm. True story. Isn't that a lot like life, though, guys? The shrapnel from the wrecks in our life the things that we have to walk through and go through, the baggage that we carry, we've become really good at hiding, haven't we? And yet, the, the truth is that in the heat of the moment, the shrapnel comes out, the responses are there, and those things impact and affect us in very real ways. This baggage of our life remains, and we carry it with us, and nobody is perfect. It makes its way into our present in all kinds of different ways, especially in conflict. It is likely that it didn't take very long for you to realize, much to your initial surprise, that your spouse is not perfect. I know. <laughs> and it probably took a lot less time for your spouse to realize that you're not perfect. Do I get it right there? <laughs> and once this realization sets in, in the heat of re the relational dynamics that we all face, when, when conflict happens, there is oftentimes this crazy downward spiral where our spouse's imperfections begin to annoy us more. They start to make us angry. The relationship starts to fall apart. And if we're not careful, the joy and the fun are gone. And very typically, what I've seen happen in these circumstances is that virtually 100% of your time and your energy as it relates to your relationship is really focused on one thing, the things that your spouse needs to change to make it better, right? Now, I know, I know but I have, a, I have an important question to ask. How's that working for you? Is it seen to be helpful? What would happen if you spent all of the time and energy that you spend thinking about dreaming, negotiating, talking to your friends about all the ways your spouse should change, if you spent the same amount of time looking into your own life, into your own heart, examining the things that you carry, looking at the shrapnel that you bring into the marriage, making sure that you're doing your very best to change where change needs, do you think there would be change? Everybody do this. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, Doc. So why then do we do it this other way? I think it's because we approach our relationships oftentimes as consumers rather than contributors. This is not working very well, and this makes a mess of our relationships very fast. If you have your Bibles, will you please turn to Ephesians chapter five because there has to be a better way. My main thought is this, relational success requires an intentional response. You know, my dad said something to me years and years ago. I've shared with you over the years some of these Walter Millerisms, and this one was huge, and I had no idea what he was talking about. When I was just a young man, even starting to think about dating girls, he said to me, he said, you know what, Doug, I want to give you some advice. And he used to say all the time, if I could just put what I know in a pill and give it to you, you'd be way better off. I'd be like, well, yeah, you're probably right, right? Now I wish I had that pill. But this is what he said. He said, Doug, when you start thinking about girls that you want to date, and in particular girls that, that you would end up wanting to be in relationship with long-term and then marrying someday, I want you to find a girl that will help you find yourself, not one that wants you to lose yourself. I was like, well, whatever, Dad. I'm looking for hot. Right? <laughs> Let's just keep it real. And then all of a sudden, 
What my dad said makes a whole lot of sense. So I wanna share with you today two key ingredients to a successful relationship. I believe that this is one of the pinnacle passages of relationship in scriptures. These two ingredient essential, uh, ingredients are essential for both men and women. As a matter of fact, there's a very famous uh, doctor of psychology. His name is John Gottman. Perhaps you've heard of the Gottman Institute from the University of Washington that did an incredible study on marriages, did an incredible study on relationships that continues today. It's lasted over 30 years. And what has been coined the Love Laboratory, they have studied over the course of 30 years over 3,000 couples. The way that they interact, the conversations they have, the way they deal with conflict, and they've made copious notes and observations of these over 3,000 relationships. And this has been profiled in Malcolm Gladwell's number one bestseller book called Blink. They've been featured on Dateline, NBC, BBC, The Anderson Cooper Show, Time Magazine, and The Atlantic. These guys have been highlighted. They actually have an app. If you go to the App Store and just search Gottman, there will be an app that comes up that is a, a series of cards that you use that bring questions in several different arenas that facilitate conversation among couples. I would encourage you to check it out. Beth and I have used it. See if this doesn't resonate with your experience though. What they found is that in the vast majority of relationships, again, not 100%, but the vast majority statistically, is that when conflict comes, these couples have self-described their experience this way, so often the issue causing the conflict ends up not really being the issue. Hmm. Think about your experience. And this is what has been, again, the self-described feelings of the majority of people. When conflict arises, again, in the vast majority of women, they share that regardless of what the conflict is about, in the end, the way the conflict happens, the things said, not said, the things done, not done, causes the woman to feel unloved. And when conflict arises in the vast majority of the men, they share, regardless of what the conflict is about, once the conflict hits... The things that are said, unsaid, done, and not done cause the man to feel disrespected. The vast majority of times, and according to their studies, this plays out in similar fashion regardless of demographics, regardless of where you live, how many kids you have, what you do for a living, your financial standing, even regardless of all the different personalities. And again, not 100% of the time, but the vast majority of the time, this proves true. And I want you to think about your experiences now just for a second in your relationships. When conflict arises in the vast majority of the times, the women share, regardless of what the conflict is about, see if this isn't true to you, that ultimately what happens is, because of the way it went down, the conflict made you feel unloved. And men, let me just share with you that, see if this isn't similar, I know it has been for me, that in the vast majority of times, men have shared that that conflict, regardless of what it's about, ends up, when it happens, to where you feel disrespected. One study showed that in over 83% of the time, when a fight breaks out, over 83% of the time, it ends up that men make a decision to withdraw from the conversation in one way, shape, or form, to back out of it, to somehow get out of it, which to a woman is translated to what feels like a direct opposite of love, some kind of act of hostility, that he isn't being loving, or worse yet, if it goes too far, the feelings that he must not love me anymore. And over 72% of the time, when crazy happens, the fight breaks out, women tend to initiate with criticism and complaint, trying to change and motivate change in some kind of way, 
which makes a man feel like she's in contempt or that she finds me inadequate or in some way despises me. And if this is played out too far, that she doesn't respect me and there's nothing I can do to be good enough. Now, I don't want you to confuse what I'm saying. We all need love and respect equally in our lives. However, the felt needs that we have as men and women are different, especially in an argument. And we see things as men and women with a different set of lenses, and it's very difficult for us to understand how to be a contributor rather than a consumer in a relationship because we see things so differently. And oftentimes, stress and conflict, isn't this true? They have a way of exposing the armor of our heart so that really what's in here comes out. So again, I want you to be thinking about this this weekend. Relational success is gonna require an intentional response. So when conflict arises and we respond in these ways, what's really happening, and this is huge, both men and women, again, remember, we equally need love and respect, but deep inside of our God-given hardwiring, every man defaults to a drive to be respected. If you don't think that's true, just listen to him talk about a time throughout the course of his day where he felt disrespected. And he's probably ready to punch somebody in the nose. So we learn, rather than go to jail and court, we gotta get out, we gotta back out. And deep inside our God-given hardwiring as as women, we default to a drive to be loved. And these are most often the lenses that we see relationship through. Again, regardless of where you are on the relationship spectrum, please hear what I'm saying today. This has the potential to save you thousands of dollars in marriage counseling. So men, listen to me, when your behavior, remember, this is not typically the way you think and this is not your default mode, so that's gonna make this even more difficult. It's very hard for us to learn because it doesn't come naturally, but men, listen to me, when your behavior is in some way interpreted, which you won't see it clearly this way, but when your behavior, the things you say and don't say, the things you do and don't do, are somehow interpreted by your wife as unloving, you're crushing the very source that brings life to your relationship. So no wonder it's hard. Some of you guys know this, a couple of years ago, um, we did a major renovation on our house. It took a full year, and it was brutal. The first floor was turned upside down. God bless my wife, we had to build her a temporary kitchen, and it was down to the studs and wires hanging all, it was brutal, brutal. And what we've often told those that are closest to us that in the one year of significant remodel of our house, we argued more than we did in the 25 years preceding. And I like to jokingly say that it was her fault, right? <clears throat> Only the guys are laughing right now. But let me tell you how this, how this worked. I'd like to tell you that I did this perfect and I did not. And there were times just because of the stress of our living environment and the things that needed to get done and decisions that needed to be made, the heat of all of that that was going on as well as all the regular family stuff and life stuff and work stuff, that just like, it just got crazy. And there were times where the things that I said, I watched it happen. The things that I were saying broke my wife's spirit. And she's a sweet person. And I know that my words have the power to do that to her. And you know what's even sicker? Sometimes I saw it and I didn't stop. I kept going. The Bible tells us that our eyes are the window to our soul. And listen to me, men, I know you know what I'm talking about. There are times when you have used your words. There are times that your behavior has somehow communicated, even though we don't fully understand how, 
but you've seen it break your wife's spirit. You can see it in her eyes. You know what I'm talking about. And listen, the same is true on the other side of the coin. Ladies, when your behavior, remember, it's not even the way you typically see things. It's not your default mode. You don't even naturally think this way, but it's going to be hard for you to understand and perceive and to understand this. But ladies, remember, your husband has a different set of lenses that he sees life through. And when your behavior, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, and what you don't do is interpreted by your husband, again, you're not even going to understand how that happened, but is interpreted in some way as disrespectful. You're crushing the source of life, the very thing that is the heartbeat, the soul, and brings life to your marriage. He feels like in your eyes he isn't good enough. He feels like you don't respect him. And worst case scenario, if this plays out long enough, he feels like there's nothing that he can do to change the way you see him. Ultimately, this as well will bring death to your relationships. And ladies, let me tell you something. I believe that if you'll take a breath in the heat of an argument and look into his eyes, you will know when you've crushed his spirit. The very thing that is to be bringing life to this relationship, your words have the power to completely destroy. We have to get this right. If we want our marriages to work, we have to get this right. One psychologist I heard talked about this, and he calls it the crazy cycle. Because, ladies, here's what's happened. When, you, when you're in the heat of an argument, it doesn't even matter what it's about, because ultimately that's not what it's about, and you start to feel as though your heart has been crushed in some way that's what's said or not said or done or not done, has somehow crushed your heart and you're feeling unloved, the first thing that we do is defend ourselves, right? So you're going to push off of the thing that's crushing the thing that brings life to your marriage, You're going to push off, and typically what happens when you push off is you're pushing right back on by the things you say, don't say, the things you do and don't do that's going to crush your husband's spirit. And guys, listen, we do the same thing, right? We're taught to defend ourselves, and so when we feel like there's this rise up and this conflict happens, what we want to do is push back, push off of this thing that is crushing our spirit, that's causing us to feel disrespected, and oftentimes, in the heat of that moment, when we're pushing back, what's going to happen is we're going to say and do things that, again, are going to, bro- are going to crush the very thing that brings life to this relationship, and now it just becomes a vicious cycle of crushing spirit that eventually ends in this thought, if I'd have just found the perfect person, this would not happen. And if we're not careful, then the relationship ends up in divorce, and we start the whole thing over again trying to find someone that we think will work. I want to challenge you today to stop Before you say anything, look in your spouse's eyes and ask the Lord to show you what he sees. And be careful before you proceed to not crush that spirit. You see, relational success is going to require an intentional response. How in the world do we fix this? 
Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read this to you. You're going to see a familiarity here because the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he quotes the same passage that Jesus did back in that Matthew passage and he says this. He's writing, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Then he says this. This is awesome. Five words. This is a great mystery. Can I get an amen? (laughs) But it's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, look at this. This is crazy. Each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Whoa. Isn't it interesting that God didn't tell the man to respect and the woman to love because that comes naturally? Instead, there's this command that comes to you and I that says, look, I know there are some dynamics at play here that are going to be the life source of this relationship, and I know it doesn't come naturally to you because in his created order, we're different. So the part that I struggle with the most, he's commanded to me to do. And the part, ladies, that you struggle the most to do, he's commanded you to do. What? How did he know to do that? You know how he knew? He created you. He knew how this was going to work. He created us different with a plan that we would be able to have a healthy relationship. And not only that, but he actually created marriage. And not only that, he gave us the handbook. And so, of course, it would make perfect sense for us to say, listen, if I want to do this right, I'm going to go to the source of life. I'm going to go to the creator of life. And I'm going to go to the creator of the institution of marriage. And then please never forget, the enemy of our souls recognizes marriage to be the very fiber and the very building block of God's created order. So what is he coming after? Look around. I'm not making this up. Look around. The very institution of marriage and the way that we do it is under attack every single day. So we need to pay attention and we need to look differently. It's a great idea for us to take this understanding from the Lord. And so, listen, I know, I know what you're thinking right now. Two things. You're thinking two things. The first thing you're thinking is, doggone it, Doug, my spouse better be listening today. Right? <laughs> I know that that's what you're thinking. And the second thing that you're probably thinking is, Doug, I've heard this before, but listen, bro, you do not know my wife, right? Like, Doug, if you knew my wife, I get, I get an out here. Or, Doug, listen, seriously, bro, seriously, if you knew my husband, there is no way that you'd be telling me to do this. So I want to stop for just a second, and I want to tell you, if you're in this room and you have not yet made a decision to be a Christ follower, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope you're actually pursuing understanding what this looks like and means. And I'm honored that you're here today. And I really do hope in the grand scheme of all this, how this works, that you'll apply this to your marriage. I hope that you will, because I promise you it will work. Can I speak to those of you that are Christ followers? Oh, this is very different for us. You see, because this is completely independent of who you're married to. It's completely independent of the way that they behave and the things that they do. You see, there's a whole different kind of motivation that's part of this challenge that Paul gives to us, and I want to read it to you. You need to see the heart behind this challenge. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, and further submit to one another, this is earlier in the passage, and further submit to one another, because they behave right and make you happy. 
Is that right? Man, you understand Greek different than me. Because you know what it says? The heart behind this and the motivation for doing this is out of my reverence for Christ. So you see, you don't do this for your spouse. Remember earlier in the year, we talked about having to stand before the Lord of the BMC judgment one day. Whereas Christ followers, we're going to be judged for the way that we behave and the things that we do and the things we don't do, the way we've obeyed God. This will be part of it. And so we don't do this because it's easy. We don't do this because our spouse deserves it. We do this out of reverence to the one who gave his life for us. Is that easy? Look at me. Is it easy? Oh, heck no. This is hard. Relational success requires an intentional response. So Paul says to us in Ephesians 5.33, please never forget this. So I say, again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The challenge is for you and I to step up our game with our spouse in the area that we typically don't default too well. Remember Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And if we're going to understand what it, ha- what it means to have relational success, we're going to understand it requires me to be ready with an intentional response, especially in conflict, and that God created us differently. Pink and blue. Male and female. And when it works right, purple, name of our series. A reflection, right? A reflection of our Heavenly Father. Is this easy? Nope. We need to have a game plan. Is it rocket science? Do this. Is it quantum physics? No. Is it hard? Yes. Does it require a 190 IQ? Absolutely not. So those of you that use that as an excuse, you can't anymore. Relational success requires an intentional response. There is no happily ever after unless we're willing to work hard. And that doesn't mean that all the time things will be happy. So where do we begin? My challenge to you is this, is to remember, first of all, that this is a spiritual issue, not a relationship issue. I mean, relationship with God issue, right? So we do it different, out of reverence for him. And so Beth and I were talking about this this week and just some of the different things. She said, you know, Doug, you're not always respectable. I'm like, I know. And she said one of the things that she heard that she tries to practice is this, that in those heated moments when she's looking at me knowing that she is responsible in this moment to respond in a healthy way, which we don't always get right, but what she's tried to do is train herself to look past me and see Jesus behind me. I was like, baby, that is deep. (laughs) And I need to try and do that too. Can you bow your heads for just a moment? I know if you'll allow the Lord to speak to you, I know that you will understand how important this is in relationship if you're in one. You will also know how hard this is. 
So I want to ask you today, first, in your own words, just the quietness of this moment, I want you to utter a prayer in your own mind, in your own heart to the Lord, and just say, will you speak to me about where I have fallen short in this area? Will you also ask him for a supernatural ability to take a deep breath in the middle of your next heated argument and look into the eyes of your spouse that will show you their soul? Ask the Lord to help you see what he sees. Ask him that at any moment that you've crossed that line and in the dynamics of your relationship that those words begin to crush a spirit, that behavior begins to crush a spirit, that he will challenge you in that moment to stop. And now will you ask him to help you see Jesus behind your spouse? so that out of reverence to him, you will do this right. Men and women, your voice matters more than any other voice to your spouse. Please, use it wisely. Don't be a consumer. Be a contributor. Father, we pray against the enemy's attacks on the institution of marriage in our culture, but more importantly, in our own home. And will you help us to be reminded of how we've contributed to that attack by the way that we have done this in the past? And Father, will you help us from this day forward to do it differently? And Father, will you give us the courage to be the one that starts with an admission to our spouse of how we've dropped the ball that would facilitate a conversation that would bring health and accountability and life to our marriages. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Can we thank Paul?